This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Hello and welcome to another edition of the In Focus podcast. I am your host G Sampath. On July 24th, Israel's coalition government led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu passed a key part of its proposed judicial reforms. these reforms which essentially aimed to give the executive control over the judiciary had sparked massive protests both inside and outside the israeli parliament the knesset the opposition staged a walkout when the bill came up for vote and it was passed with 64 votes in favor and zero against in the 124 member assembly so what does the bill that was passed mean for israel's judiciary what other proposals are under consideration in this reform package and is israeli democracy under threat as critics of the judicial reform claim and is this in some way connected at all to the long festering israel palestinian conflict we discuss all these questions and more in this episode of in focus and we have with us stanley johnny the hindus international affairs editor stanley thank you so much for joining us thanks ambed So uh, Stanley to start with can you talk a little bit about the bill that was passed on July 24th and what have been the reactions to it so far from the opposition uh, from the public and so on what they have done is you know they have uh, passed legislation a piece of legislation amending the basic law uh, basically doing away with the reasonableness standard because if you look at israel no israel doesn't have a written constitution so israel has a set of basic laws that you know could make a future constitution and uh, this reasonableness standard which has been introduced into israel's legal practice right from the beginning and from the 1980s uh, it was used i mean its scope was expanded so basically the reasonableness standard is used by israel's judiciary uh, as an oversight tool Uh, to assess governmental decisions ministerial appointments etc etc so just look at israel's uh, system you know unlike the united states where you have a powerful congress and then an elected presidency and a, you know an administration and an independent judiciary here the government and the legislature always go hand in hand and israel's presidency is very weak and the only check and balance on the government is coming from the judiciary uh so and for the judiciary this reasonableness standard has been a very effective oversight tool i mean there were a number of examples including the supreme court decision uh that the appointment of arya deri the shas party leader as the interior minister in the current netanyahu government was uh, extremely unreasonable so following the supreme court decision netanyahu had to sack the minister so this has been used by the country's top courts over the years especially since the 1980s on a number of occasions uh you know and now what the government has done uh as part of a larger overall plan is to amend the basic laws you know stripping the supreme court of uh, this reasonability standard so that the government has now a freer hand uh, in taking critical or even controversial decisions let's say that in the future uh, the government sacks that only general because that only general is overseeing a case uh, or, or overseeing the trial of the prime minister now right and 
the, if there is the reasonability standard, the government would never be able to do that because the government would, I mean, it would always be in the back of the government's mind that even if the government takes that extreme step, the Supreme Court can strike it down. But now that the Supreme Court doesn't have those powers, the government can actually take such, I'm not saying that the government is going to do that, but talking about, you know, from a hypothetical point of view, the government can take such controversial decisions from now on. So effectively, the new legislation has strengthened the government's hands over the judiciary. That's what we have seen now. Right. So this entire uh, uh, tool of uh, using the reasonableness metric to assess a government decision and to see if the government is doing something unreasonable or unacceptable, I think that is now gone. Uh, but the same reform as part of a wider uh, range of proposals uh, were, uh, were sort of on the annual earlier this year as well. And in April, Prime Minister Netanyahu hit the pause button saying he's not going to pass them now. We're going to you know, delay them following you know, large scale protests. So what has changed from April when he said, no, we're not going to do this right now to now when he's just decided to go ahead and pass this legislation? What has changed in the interim period? In effect, nothing has changed, but I will explain it to you. Uh, see, um, this is the legislation which was passed is part of a, uh, a larger judicial overall plan. Uh, and according to this plan, you see what the Netanyahu government wanted to do was to, of course, uh, you know, uh, take away the reasonableness standard from the Supreme Court. That is one thing. And then secondly, empower the Knesset to override court decisions through a simple majority. So you have a 120 member parliament in Israel and all you need, and, and of course you need at least the support of 61 a member of uh, 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 Knesset's to form the government. So you, your government has a simple majority, right? And all you need is simple majority to override a Supreme Court decision if the second part of the overall plan is passed. So, which means the Supreme Court would come under the ambit of your parliament. Your parliament means your government, because your government has simple majority. That is another proposal. And the third proposal is that to give more control to the country's politicians in the judicial appointments. So, as of now, there is a nine-member committee. Uh, you know, and this committee is composed of three judges from the Supreme Court, including the president of the Supreme Court two members from the Bar Association. So that itself gives uh, majority or control to the lawyers and the judges in the current setup. So three from the Supreme Court, two from the Bar, and then uh, the rest from the government and parliament. So according to the overall plan, so these two members from the Bar Association would be replaced, from, re replaced by two civil society members who would be nominated by the government. So, which means the government will have a majority in the nine-member committee in the judicial appointments, which would effectively give more powers to the politicians in picking the judges. Another part of uh, the proposal is uh, <clears throat> to do away with the mandatory requirement of the ministers to follow, uh, you know, the advices from their independent legal counsels, independent legal advisors, who in turn are guided by the attorney general. So basically, in, in times of crisis, now the attorney general can give advices to uh, the independent advisors and the advisors can ask the ministers to act in a particular way when it comes to legal matters. So the government wants to free the ministers from their legal counsels, legal experts. 
So you put everything together. What the government wants to do is to strengthen the hands of, strengthen its own hands vis-a-vis uh, -vis the judiciary. So this is the overall, uh, overall, overall plan. But then what happened last time in July, uh, you know, uh, earlier Netanyahu had to back off because of widespread protests. And his own defense minister protested against it because um, the reservists were revolting against the government plan. Uh, so there were fissures within the ruling coalition from within the Likud party. But uh, the far-right parties, which, which is basically the hard-right hard settler colonialists, as well as the Haredi parties, who are United Torah Judaism and Shas. Haredis are ultra-Orthodox Jews. So they were pressing for the judicial overall plan. So what Netanyahu did, he just pressed the pause button. So he, he announced that he will hold negotiations with the opposition, political opposition, and try to reach consensus. Israel's president was also trying to hold multiple rounds of talks. And they, they held talks, but the opposition was never convinced because Netanyahu, Netanyahu during the talks, Netanyahu said that he would pause. Or, you know, the, uh, the plan to override the Supreme Court decisions, but he was insistent on the reasonableness doctrine, doing away with the reasonableness standard. Uh, so the Israeli uh, opposition finally quit talks last last month in July. Immediately after that, the government expedited the process of tabling the bill uh, in the Knesset and even getting it passed. So Netanyahu in between had said that he would pose some of the parts of the legislation. But that he said those things during the talks. But ever since the talks collapsed and the government is now back with this legislation, so, uh, and the legislation got passed, right? Because all the 64 MKs of the ruling coalition voted for, for it. And 64, it might appear to be just a razor-thin majority. But in Israel's case, it is solid. Because Israel never, no party ever gets an absolute majority in Israel. It's always coalition politics. And uh, in, in, in this incident, all the coalition members, the Likud, United Torah Judaism, Shas, Jewish Power, and Religious Zionists, all of them, which means the right-wing populist parties, the hard-right settler colonialists, and the Haredi ultra-orthodox parties, all of them stood together and voted for the reforms. That shows the, uh, you know, the ruling coalition stands uh, united and the opposition walked out, which is a great symbolic move. But beyond symbolism, it didn't have any impact because ultimately Netanyahu got the bill passed in the Knesset, right? Despite the protests outside parliament, despite the protests inside parliament, despite pressure from Israel's allies, including the United States, no matter what, Netanyahu got the bill passed. So now the far-right parties in the coalition wants to press ahead with the other parts of the legislation. So, uh, so Netanyahu had promised that he was pausing certain parts of the legislation. I don't think that he is talking about it anymore. So we have to see which part of the legislation they are going to uh, put on the Knesset website first. Right. So, uh, so Netanyahu, as you said, is in this coalition government with the religious uh, far right. Uh, so, coming to the motives for why they are so interested, so keen to pass this, this, this set of proposals in the teeth of fierce opposition, not just from the op opposition parties, but also from the public, would it be fair to say that 
both Netanyahu and his coalition partners from the religious right, they have their own reasons because he is himself facing uh, some corruption charges and he has been indicted by the Supreme Court. So is he looking to get off by sort of uh, pushing these proposals through and, you know, maybe change the attorney general or whatever when it comes to time for his uh, trial and so on? It's possible. I mean, uh, you can see both. Uh, You can see strong personal interest in it. And also, you can also see an ideological push to transform the Israeli society. I think both are involved in it. Let's talk about the personal angle. So, in January, the Supreme Court said, Arya Dari, uh, there is continuation in the, minis- in the, in the, in the cabinet was uh, extremely unreasonable, following which Netanyahu had to drop him as the interior minister. And Arya Dari is the leader of the United Torah, is the leader of the Shah's party. And the Shah's, I think, has 11 MKs in the current parliament. So Netanyahu's majority is 64. So if 11, you take 11 out of it, the government collapses, right? So uh, for, for Netanyahu, it is important and, and it is important to get Deri back in the cabinet and it could happen in the coming days, I think. Now that the reasonability standard is over, Netanyahu can reinstate him as the minister. And Deri has a criminal record. He's been convicted for corruption uh, and bribery uh, 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 breach of trust, etc., etc. Uh, but still, Netanyahu invo- inducted him in the cabinet because he is the leader of the Shah's party, and the Supreme Court turned against him. So there is, from Netanyahu's point of view, for the sustenance of his coalition, it is important to clip the wings of the judiciary. And you look at Netanyahu himself; he's been, as you pointed out, pointed out, he's been indicted for corruption, breach of trust, etc., uh, uh, etc. Et and Netanyahu is facing trial. He's the prime minister. And the Attorney General has decided, I mean, has, has said it in as many words that he is uh, going ahead with the plan to try uh, the Prime Minister. And now that the reasonability standard is over, as I pointed out earlier, the government can actually fire the Attorney General and it may not expect any judicial blowback because the judiciary doesn't have the rights to do strike down the government's decision anymore. So it is also in Netanyahu's personal interest to weaken the judiciary. So this is the personal interest angle because both the hard right parties as well as Mr. Netanyahu himself uh, want to see the judiciary weakened. But also you look at the larger picture of Israel's polity, right? Israel's polity has clearly shifted rightward over the years. You know, the four parties that are ruling... So, so you're saying Israel's polity has shifted rightward but the judiciary alone has not done so? The judiciary hasn't shifted at least... You know, as fast as Israel's polity has, polity and parliament has. This is a major contradiction here. Because the right-wing, especially the far-right parties, uh, the settler hard-right parties, uh, let's say, uh, you know, uh, the Jewish power and uh, uh, religious Zionism. And they look at the judiciary as a stumbling block in implementing their agenda. And what is their agenda? They want to annex chunks of the West Bank territories, at least the parts where Jewish settlements has, have been built. And they want to expedite building of Jewish settlements uh, in the West Bank, in the occupied West Bank, and also in East Jerusalem, right? And and I'm not saying that Israel's, Israel's judiciary has always defended uh, or, or always struck down right-wing agenda, no, but it has at least slowed down this in times, at least on certain occasions. But the government doesn't want or the far right doesn't want that to happen because they see that the society has shifted. 
parliament has shifted polity has shifted to the right but judiciary hasn't and also in israel's political setup judiciary is the only check on the government right your presidency is weak your parliament and the government are always in sync but judiciary is the only 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 uh, check so you tame the judiciary you bring the judiciary under the ambit of the government because the liquid party leaders the, the, the justice minister keeps saying that you can't uh, empower uh, you know the unelected judges continuously endlessly so you need to clip some of their powers this is what the liquid narrative is so what they want to do is that to bring the judiciary under the ambit of parliament which means bring the judiciary under the ambit of the government so that the government can also take the decisions which otherwise uh, they were anxious to take because of the judicial impediments so this could include annexation of the palestinian territories this could include building more settlements in the occupied palestinian territories right this could also include using uh, heavier uh, methods at home within israel proper israel proper means i am talking about within 1967 borders you know where your own security architecture apparatus would be stronger you know the tactics you employ in the occupied territories against the palestinians i mean who is going to stop you from using the same against your own citizens in israel so basically this empowers the government and this is what is triggering the protest because the protesters are there is no anti very strong solid anti occupation block in israel right because israelis has have been doing this against the palestinians throughout and you haven't seen this kind of protest but the but the protesters now fear that such tactics could come back to haunt them and th that's what that's why they are saying israel's democracy is being undermined because israel's democracy has always been a very complicated concept right but now the protesters say that democracy is being undermined because they fear that the tactics israel's security architecture security apparatus uh, are employing against the palestinians can now be used against you right earlier stanley when you spoke about netanyahu's motivation for uh, pushing through this judicial reforms package when you spoke about how it's important for him not only for his own uh, uh, criminal trial but also for keeping his coalition going given that one of uh, as in given that some of them uh, are uh, very much in at loggerheads with the supreme court you get the example of the shah's minister whose appointment as an interior minister was struck down now coming and, and in terms of why his coalition partners the far right want the supreme court to be brought to heel uh, you did mention that they would want a free hand to go ahead and annex uh, the settlement areas in the occupied territories and so on and so forth but one of the key uh, arguments or key uh, issues for the far right have been exemptions from military service for uh, for the orthodox uh, jews like can you talk a little bit about how why this is so important for them and uh, where does this fit in with the supreme court's uh, approach to this issue and why uh, why can't they just give them an exemption and then you may not have to even bring in this judicial reforms right but then they feel that you need to uh, make sure that the supreme court will not strike down this kind of exemption and therefore you have these judicial reforms Yeah. whereas uh, so why is his exemption for religious jews so important uh, so uh, haredi jews have always resisted serving in the military uh, haredis are the ultra orthodox jewish community so um, uh, what the government or, or what they push for is uh, you know uh, is to give a blanket 
exemption to all the religious Jews, ultra-Orthodox Jews, uh, from uh, mandatory military service, which is Israel is a society that has mandatory military so service, right? And this is what the ultra-Orthodox Jews want. And this is also one of the triggering points here, because the, the liberal and secular Jews, they all sign up for military service in Israel. And uh, they see that on the other side, the ultra-Orthodox Jews refuse to do this. And the ultra-Orthodox Jews are now politically very powerful because you have Shahs and United Torah Judaism as part of the government. And Netanyahu has always been very, you know, sensitive towards their demands. And you also see the liberal sections of Israeli society, they also see that now they are pushing for these judicial reforms, right? So they don't even serve in the military, they refuse to serve in the military, and they want proper legal exemption from the government uh, that would uh, exempt them uh, from military service so that, I mean, once if, if I mean, if the Supreme Court's uh, clout has been taken away, Supreme Court powers has been taken away, the government decision would not even be challenged by the Supreme Court. So they see, the liberal sections of Israeli society see that they serve up for military service and, and the reservists kind of, you know, make up the backbone of the Israeli military in times of crisis, they, they serve the military. And on the other side, ultra-Orthodox Jews who do not even sign up, who resist signing up for the military, are now pushing the reforms. And that would give legal guarantees to them in the future. That could give in the future. So this contradiction is also there. That's why military reservists are en masse coming out and protesting. Some 10,000 reservists have already said that they would resign and then they would not report for service. So this contradiction is also there. So basically, you so can... this contradiction, uh, Stanley. So this contradiction you are referring to is it basically between ultra orthodox uh, Jews and the liberal secular section of the Jewish community, or is it also along some kind of ethnic or class lines? Because I mean, uh, the protesters you did mention that the protesters against the judicial reforms they were not really. Uh, uh, protesting against the occupation as such and most of the much of the protest I mean at least the intensity of the protest was much more in Tel Aviv rather than in Jerusalem so the Jerusalem Jews have not been at the forefront so much so is there any kind of a division say between the European descendant Ashkenazi Jews as they are called versus Arab Jews here or is that like reading too much into uh, the divisions uh, and polarization? Uh, so you can, I mean, in a sense, European Jews, you can say, are at least, uh, you know, the liberal sections of Israel's Jewry are from, uh, you know, they have the European roots. On the other side, West Asian Jews, uh, you know, uh, are much more conservative. But beyond that, I don't think this is, this is a, you know, based on racial lines. Rather, what you can you can say that you know basically what is happening is that israel's far right and it is religious orthodoxy so the far right means i'm talking about the hard right settler jewish parties who want to expedite occupation take up more territories etc etc and transform the israeli society and the ultra orthodox jews who want military exemption, who also want to reinforce Israel's Jewish identity over its democratic or liberal identity, etc., etc. They have joined hands with the mainstream right-wing party, Likud party of Netanyahu, 
and then they are trying i mean they 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 are there is a convergence of interests your religious interests your political interests your personal interests and they all come together implementing these reforms clipping the wings of the judiciary trying to transform the society and reinforcing israel's identity as a jewish state but in effect by scuttling the powers of the only check and balances balance against the government this could turn israel into a de facto theocracy this has triggered concerns among the liberal sections and it started the protest started in the liberal sections then it spread across i think from uh, civil society groups to workers uh you know uh, uh, to including even airport workers and uh, professionals etc students etc etc so it has mobilized millions of people on the other side so i think we should look beyond the racial lines basically this is reforms championed by the far right and ultra orthodox and mainstream right against israel's civil society That's right. So generally, Stanley, I'm just trying to understand one thing here. So by far right, say if you take other countries like India, for instance, far right is is sort of identified with extreme nationalism. But in Israel, do we have like two different uh, kinds of far right? One is the religious uh, far right, which is the kind of the parties who want exemption from military service and so on, and then the secular far right, you know, who want to expand uh, occupied territories, uh, the settlers. uh you know expand settlements in occupied territories annex the occupied territories and so on so is there like a contradiction between the secular far right uh, and the religious far right or is there like more of a convergence uh, between them no there is no distinction between these two in a sense uh, uh, jewish power and religious zionists are not secular they are also they, they are basically religious nationalists you know like the far right in india's case or in europe's case because itamar ben gvir leader of uh, jewish power uh, he was uh, you know he he i mean all said and done he was a racist right he was he uh, he had cases against him uh, he had a racist picture hanging on his wall and he had threatened to act against israel's own minorities which make up 20% of the population to sack them from israel proper so this is the track record and uh, he 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 wears a kippa he is not secular and he is as much a religious nationalist as anybody else so is smotrich so but their agenda is different in a sense the uh, the haredis their focus is on basically on religious matters so they wanted to protect their religious fiefdom their interest their role in public life that's what the shas and united torah judaism are focused on whereas smotrich and itamar ben gvir the religious nationalists they also have a political agenda so the, and both of them agree on israel's identity as a jewish state it's one of the basic laws right so israel is a state for the jewish people so israel's jewish identity both of them they all agree even likud agree so when it comes to the far right or the mainstream right or um let's say the religious right i don't think there is any distinction between them but there is extreme uh, there are extreme uh, secular nationalists as well in israel for example uh, avigdor lieberman's party avigdor lieberman is a secular guy but he is also a nationalist he also has this extreme when it comes to palestinian issue he is as extreme as anybody else lieberman but lieberman is not a part of this government because lieberman is very critical of 
the current government calling it theocracy etc etc so you have secular nationalism in israel but the current dispensation uh, is composed of religious nationalism so that's why this is people say this is the farthest right government in israel 75 years of history but you also see this is the most ideologically cohesive government this also suggests how israeli society has shifted over the years labor has been dismantled your main opposition party itself is a center right party right we have so this shows how israeli society has transformed over the years and you have finally got a, a, an ideologically cohesive right-wing government right religious settler government in israel which is pushing for uh, the overall of the country right so you i mean as you as you have sort of very beautifully explained there is a clear shift towards the right uh, for the polity as a whole you have an ideologically cohesive uh, right-wing government in place and yet when we keep reading reports uh, in in the leading papers of israel times of israel and uh, haaretz and a couple of other papers about uh, this exodus, quote-unquote, of people from, from Israel following this judicial coup and this threat to democracy. And uh, a lot of people are looking, apparently, for alternative passports. They're trying to shift to Canada, Greece, and uh, ironically enough, Austria and Berlin. So Jews moving, wanting to move from Israel to Austria, for instance. I mean, it really becomes, it looks very bizarre reading it, but what is? who are these Jews who feel they don't feel at home in Israel anymore in the face of this right-wing shift. Like, wh what is going on there? Yeah, it is. Israel is uh, all said and done. It is also a diverse society. So you have secular currents in Israel. You have liberal currents in Israel, as you pointed out, maybe from Ashkenazi community. or uh, And I myself have interacted with a lot of uh, uh, Jewish activists in Israel who are very vocal against the occupation. And you have... Uh, I mean, you have Haaretz, you have Jewish Currents, wonderful publications which continue to uh, take a critical position on uh, the Israeli government. Uh, so th this is a country that still has, uh, you know, uh, liberal currents and they are very much worried about uh, the developments in the country. And, and, and you also see that uh, hundreds of thousands of people have mobilized from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem on the day the Knesset passed the legislation that itself shows uh, the kind of uh, opposition uh, the Israelis are the government. Are, the government is facing. Uh, so, I mean, this also shows the divisions. You know, um, it is a Jewish society. It is a Jewish country. It has Jewish identity, etc., etc. So, despite everything, the right wing is trying to do to build a homogeneous state. Uh, what they have effectively done by introducing this uh, law, this legislation, is uh, to make the divisions in Israel sharper basically to render Israel weaker. So that's what we are witnessing. So uh, I think, yeah, of course, people, uh, uh, I mean, people flee countries, right? When they find the domestic situation becomes so toxic, this has happened with uh, many countries. Uh, like you look at citizens who are applying for foreign passports in many countries, it is going up. So I think the same thing may be happening in the case of Israel as well. Right. It, it does, of course, it does uh, makes one wonder where uh, they might find a more congenial place than Israel. Now, one final question, Stanley, before we wrap up. Now, Israel, Israeli democracy, I mean, there's a lot of talk about uh, it coming under threat. Uh, there is talk of Israel becoming an illiberal democracy uh, like Hungary, for instance. Now, Israel, uh, for those who are outside, has always had this double phase, you know, within its like pre-1967 borders. It is 
uh, let us say a liberal democracy but in the west bank and gaza it is it is like a military dictatorship it's an apartheid colonial state which is right to the furthest right right wing uh, regime that one could imagine so there is and and then there is this continue these are all part of the same geography you know they're just like one uh, whatever razor razor wire border there so israeli democracy so to speak where a huge chunk of the population on its territory is living under a dictatorship kind of a scenario is israeli democracy finally breaking down under the weight of this contradiction between two chunks of its own territory yeah um it's true the counter question is that can a religious state that is occupying another people brutally for 70 75 years ever be a meaningful democracy i think it's impossible it's true that israel within israel proper has functioned as a democratic society it has institutions it has elections free and fair elections it has political parties it respects right to dissent etc etc within israel proper but at the same time just beyond the green line uh, it is a brutal occupier right it is it demolish it it, does, it uses collective punishment against palestinian attackers uh it doesn't respect international law it doesn't respect un security council resolutions uh it keeps people in gaza under its illegal occupation it has built checkpoints across the west bank the eastern jerusalem has been annexed illegally by the israelis and it restricts movement of the palestinians and it has shoot and kill order against the palestinians and uh, uh, you know especially Pal- young palestinians palestinian teens uh, are being killed almost on a daily basis and during conflicts uh, a lot of palestinian children are deliberately being targeted so this is the state we are talking about so can such a state ever be a meaningful democracy is a question i think we have to ponder over that is one thing and secondly yes finally the contradiction is coming back to haunt the democratic arrangement even within israeli proper that's what we are witnessing now because it's not a coincidence that the highest defenders of the occupation are also the highest defenders of the judicial overall plan the far right the religious right they want more palestinian territories they want to sack the palestinians they want to annex the palestinian land further annex palestinian lands so they also want to get rid of the challenges that could threaten their agenda so basically it is you know the the methods the state of israel is using in the palestinian territories are coming back to haunt the people of israel within proper israel right two very uh, important points there stanley really appreciate that one of course can a religious occupying colonial power really be a democracy in any meaningful sense and number two as you pointed out uh, the same uh, groups and forces that are the highest defenders of the occupation are also the highest defenders of the judicial reforms package those are telling uh, pointers indeed thank you so much stanley for joining us and for sharing your observations and thoughts on this unfolding story we'll have to wait and see how uh, this develops in the days to come whether the protesters finally are able to put a halt to this reforms package or whether the governing coalition goes ahead with the rest of the proposals as well thank you so much pleasure talking to you stan thanks so much pleasure
In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.